This message by Mike Pluniak was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Mike serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. You can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. If you need a Bible this morning, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers would be happy to bring you a Bible that's yours to keep so you can read off of it this morning. We're back in our series on the Acts of the Risen Lord. And thankfully, we are in Acts chapter 11 today because it's a very unifying text about unity. And I can tell me putting up this tree has divided the church. So I apologize. I wasn't aware that we had so many Pharisees in the church, so (laughs) here to set you free. It's grace. It's all of grace. There's room for all in the church. We're going to see that in Acts 11 today. Let's let God's Word speak. How about that? Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. This is God's authoritative Word for us today. Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on the coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. May God bless the preaching and the hearing and the applying of his word. In our text, we have the planting of a church in Antioch, a church that is going to send shockwaves through the world as a church planting hub. 
A church that will send out Barnabas and Paul. A church that will support the work of missions. A church where they are first known as Christians. And the way this church in Antioch began, the people who planted it, the circumstances, the members of the church who came together, the men who pastored it, the impact it will have on missions, it is very surprising. As we've walked through Acts, I keep finding myself being surprised, freshly surprised. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch was surprising. The conversion of Saul was surprising. Cornelius and the angel and Peter's vision were all surprising. And this church is surprising. There really is no human explanation for this. It doesn't make sense from the world's perspective. This is God's doing. And I think the main point God would have us take from this passage today is don't underestimate the church. Don't underestimate the church. And I'm going to have four observations about the church in Antioch to help us not underestimate the church today. First thing, first observation, number one, the church is planted by anonymous people. It's planted by anonymous people. Look down again at verse 19. Luke tells us, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Luke is picking up the story from chapter 8, verse 1, after the stoning of Stephen. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then Luke goes on in Acts to give us a series of individual conversions. We have the Ethiopian official and Saul and Cornelius and the gospel coming to the Gentiles. And now in chapter 11, he is returning back to those who were persecuted. For several chapters, we've been left wondering what, what happened to them? Were they in hiding? Were they cowering in disguise and living like they were in the witness protection program, taking on new names. Oh, no. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. And we see that those who were scattered into Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, as they are being scattered, the gospel is going with them to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus promise in Acts 1.8. And what is surprising about this is how. I don't think this is what they envisioned. This is what Luke wants us to see. This great persecution against the church was God's providential way to accomplish his purpose in taking the gospel to all people. Opposition cannot stop the gospel. In fact, God can use opposition to advance the gospel. That's what we see happening here. Because of this great persecution, they are scattered and God uses that scattering to plant a new church. 
The word scattered, the word used here for scattered is generally referred to Referring to seeds, a scattering of seeds. Like Jesus telling the parable of the sower and scattering his seeds. And so what appears like Christians fleeing for their lives is actually seeds falling from a tree being scattered. And wherever they fall, wherever they land, new trees are popping up and growing. J. Gresham Machen says this, He says, it is dangerous to scatter the disciples of Jesus. Those who were scattered became triumphant missionaries. In trying to remove the church from Jerusalem, the Pharisees had given the church to the world. We will find the same thing true in our day as well. Opposition cannot stop the gospel. God will use it to advance his gospel. It is dangerous to scatter the disciples of Jesus. So, who were these disciples that were scattered? We don't know. Look down at verse 20 and 21. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Notice in verse 20 that these men are anonymous. We're going to see that their evangelism is going to begin one of the most influential churches in the New Testament. It's going to become a church planting hub. They're going to send shockwaves through the world, but we don't know who started it. Luke chooses not to name them. It's interesting how everything is named today. I mean, just walk around the University of Tennessee Everything has a name on it. The stadium, the field in the stadium, every building, many buildings with the same name on them of a very prominent family in Tennessee. The arena, I can't even keep track of it anymore. I was trying to figure out what is the arena called anymore. It's the Thompson Bowling Arena at the Food City Center And the court in Thompson Bowling Arena at Food City Center is the summit named after Pat Summit. So if you're playing basketball, you're playing on the summit in Thompson Bowling Arena at the Food City Center. That's a lot of names to keep track of. At UT, it's okay to have your name on something. It's an honor. You've earned it. You paid for that name to be on there. But in the church... It's okay to be anonymous. I love this. I love that this church is so influential and it has this amazing impact on the world and yet we don't know who started it. They are anonymous. And this is good because what they're known for here in the text, it's not, the church is not known by their name. They're not remembered for their name. They're remembered by the name that they were preaching, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's really only one name that matters in the church, and that is the name that is above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's what they're remembered for. That's their legacy. It's not who they are. It's what they've proclaimed in Jesus. Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. And I doubt, I doubt these men are in heaven right now saying, come on, Luke, couldn't you have just mentioned our names, you know? Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, I have a name. I'm a person, Luke. You can name me. I doubt they're there doing that, you know? Telling Luke, you mentioned Philip. Stephen gets a whole chapter. Cornelius is mentioned 28 times. Just a little reference, you know? I doubt that matters to them right now. I don't think they care. I think they prefer to be anonymous in this text. And as I read this text, I cannot help but think about people in this room right now who I respect so much, who have been part of this church since the beginning. Men and women who planted this church over 30 years ago and have been faithfully serving behind the scenes, serving for the glory and the advance and the name of Jesus Christ. You are heroes of the faith. And I bet when they saw the fruit of this church, they are anonymous, but the fruit is not anonymous here in this passage. And I hope you are encouraged. People right now who you would be uncomfortable if I said your name, I hope you are encouraged by this text to see the fruit and the fruit of this church in planting churches in other cities and people coming to know Christ and baptisms happening here this morning. People believing in the Lord Jesus because you have remained anonymous behind the scenes. Thank you for your serving. These are ordinary disciples being scattered because of persecution but taking with them the name above all names and God blesses it. This is surprising. God is doing this. Point number two, second observation about this church. The church consists of a surprising group of people. Not only is it planted by anonymous men we don't know, but it consists of a surprising group of people. In verse 20, these unnamed men begin preaching to Hellenists or Greeks. From the context, it appears that these Greeks are not Jewish, but Gentiles. And so what we have happening here is we have Jewish men from North Africa, who it appears got saved in Jerusalem, traveling to Antioch and preaching the gospel to Greek pagans. And God is blessing it, and many of them are getting saved and believing in Jesus. And this is quite an odd-looking group of people. It would have been confusing to the people of Antioch to see this gathering happening. If you were a guest walking into this church in Antioch on a Sunday morning, you would be very confused. Listen, if, if, you're, a, if you're a guest here this morning, thank you for being here. We, we try to appreciate this is all new to you. 
You, you don't know where the children go. And you don't know maybe the songs we sing. It's new to you. And, and you don't know who's leading the singing. There's so many new things. We try to appreciate it. And we understand it can be confusing at times. That seems to be our ministry here at Cornerstone. Awkward and confusing. That's what we keep saying. I promise you, if you were a guest at Antioch, you would be much more confused. Before the singing even started, you would walk in scratching your head. You, you are both here. Why are you both here together? This makes no sense. Nothing like this existed anywhere in the world at this point in time. I promise you that. That's why, look at the, look at the second half of verse 26. It says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I think we take that verse as like, what an honor. I think they got that way because they didn't know what else to call them. There was no other name for them. It seems apparent that this was not a designation for themselves. It was others who began calling them this, the people of Antioch. And the reason is, it was such an odd group, they didn't know what else to call them. In Antioch, we have Jews and Greeks, Syrians, Phoenicians, Arabs, Persians, Cyprians, Cyrenians, and they're all worshiping together, singing together, fellowshipping together, praying together, giving together. And what we see is the, the gospel had transcended the deepest divisions in humanity. And they were united together. And these, this new group needed a new name. And the one thing, the only thing they had in common was Jesus Christ. That was it. And that was enough. And so as they tried to label them, they, what do you call this? Who are these people? They are Christ people. That's all they have in common is Jesus Christ. Recently, my wife Elizabeth has gotten into quilts. She, she finds old ones and she patches them and she loves them and she studies them and she just looks at them and looks at every little patch and it brings her great joy. And honestly, I don't get it. I just, I don't understand. I told her, I don't get it. You know, I, what's wrong with just the blanket that's consistent over here. I don't get the quilt. I don't understand the love of it. She would say, I'm boring. I, I appreciate that, you know, but she loves these quilts, and I just don't get it. And studying this text this week, I finally get it. I get the quilt. It finally made sense to me. A quilt has all these different patches, and every one of them is unique and different, and it's individual, and yet they're all stitched together, brought together, united together, and each one is unique, each one is magnificent, and yet when you stand back, there is this unity to this quilt. It is a beautiful thing. I'm becoming a quilt lover. That's what's happening from this text this week, because as I studied this passage, I thought that's the church. All these different people, each one unique, individual, and yet stitched together by Jesus Christ. And it makes this beautiful picture, this blanket, this quilt together. 
That's what the church is. And what we see in our text is the stitching to them, what brought them together. They had all been different, individual, and what brought them all together was Jesus Christ. He stitched them together. And so they called them Christ people. That's who you are. You are Christ people. That is your identity. That is your name. That's what you have in common. That may be all you have in common, but that is enough. You are Christ people. This week, we went to a pastor's conference, Sovereign Grace Pastor's Conference in Orlando. And I brought with me uh, my hat that Jason Gillerin had given to me. It's a Buffalo Bills hat. And when you wear a Buffalo Bills hat, you quickly learn Bills Mafia are everywhere around the world. I kept running into Bills fans everywhere. And Bills fans, if you're a Buffalo Bills fan, you, you, you give each other a certain look. It's kind of like, oh, you too, huh? Like, we, we've been through some stuff together over the years, you know. There was even a guy in the lobby of our hotel. I had my Bills hat on, and he had on a Bills sweatshirt. And he was on the phone, and he gave me the look and the nod, like, oh, yeah, you too, you know. And then he got off his phone call, and he goes, hey, I'm so sorry. I had to take that call. And I was like, you don't, like, I don't, I don't know you, like. But it was like he was apologizing that he didn't like acknowledge me first as a Bills fan before the call. Something that unites us together. It's, it's interesting. It just made me realize, you know, like there's things that unite us together. There are hobbies and interests and things that we do alike and our neighbors. And I just realized that Bills fan, I'm like, I don't know you. I don't know anything about you. We, we're not united. We, we share interests in a football team. You know, like that's pretty, it's, it's a good icebreaker, but we're not like united together in life, you know? In Christ, listen, in Christ, we may have nothing else in common with the people sitting next to us, but because we are Christians, we have more in common than everyone else we may look alike in this world. With Christians around the world, we have more in common with them than our neighbors who live next door to us who don't know Christ. We are united together. And the effect of this is it just makes you love the church. Christ unites us together. That is what we have in common. We are united at the deepest level of our identity. That's what, that's what baptism is signifying. They are united to Christ. They have died to sins, been raised to newness of life. They are Christ's people. And not only have they been united to Christ, but they've been united to us now. They are part of Christ's church. We are united together. It makes you love the church. Don't underestimate the church. Don't underestimate the church. The people here are surprising. It's a surprising group of people and what they have in common is Christ. Third observation. Not only does it consist of a surprising group of people, but the church is pastored by surprising people. It's pastored by surprising people. Look at verse 22. So you have this odd group of Jews and Gentiles from different nations coming together. And the report of this, verse 22, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent 
Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Have you ever heard of something and thought, I've got to see that for myself? That's what happened to the church in Jerusalem. They heard of this church. They heard of what was happening, and they thought, we have to get eyes on this and see this for ourselves. And so they send Barnabas. And there's a reason that they named him the son of encouragement. Just look at his response. He is an encourager. He recognizes this as God's grace. He saw the grace of God at work in the church. Ability to see grace at work is a wonderful gift in Barnabas. I want to be like Barnabas. Remember, it was Barnabas in Acts 9 who takes Saul to the apostles. They were all afraid of him. They didn't believe Saul had become a follower of Christ. They thought it was a trick. You know who believed? Barnabas believed. And when Barnabas comes to Antioch, he recognizes God's grace on display and Barnabas is glad. I love that. He's glad. It brings him joy to see this church. It makes him happy to see the church like this. And instead of questioning them or discouraging them or saying, hey, 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 these are Gentiles. Why? You were supposed to come to the Jews. Why did you begin doing this? He doesn't do that. He encourages them all the more to serve the Lord with steadfast purpose. He's full of the Spirit. He's encouraging. He sees the grace of God. And what happens is even more people come. More people are coming to the church. They're walking in. They're scratching their heads. What's going on here? This is about Christ preaching the Lord Jesus. And more are being added to their number day by day. What we have here is a Gentile revival taking place. But it's Jews and Gentiles in church together. And Barnabas is overwhelmed and he needs help. So who are you going to call? Saul of Tarsus, not Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? Saul. Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Listen, when Barnabas goes to find Saul, it's been seven to eight years since the last time he's been seen. I know it's just a few chapters in the book of Acts, but it's been seven to eight years since the last time he's been seen. In chapter 9, Saul is in Jerusalem, and the Greek-speaking Jews are trying to kill him, so they send him to Tarsus. And we have almost a whole decade of Paul's Christian life about which we know next to nothing. Ten years since Jesus himself appeared to him and said he was going to be a chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Ten years almost, Saul is waiting, commissioned by the Lord Jesus, born again by the Spirit, waiting, patiently waiting praying, Lord, you have called me, you have commissioned me, when will I go? And just imagine one day, he's just at home, and all of a sudden, it's his old friend Barnabas. And he comes to him, Saul, 
About a hundred miles from here in Antioch, Gentiles are being born again by the hundreds. And I'm overwhelmed and I don't know what to do. I need help. And when Saul comes from Tarsus to Antioch, this is amazing grace. Just think about this for a minute, okay? The people who are scattered and persecuted by Paul in verse 19 are now being pastored by Paul in verse 26. Paul is the reason this church exists from his persecution, and now he has become the pastor of this church. I mean, where else would you find this in the world apart from the church? And it just makes me wonder how Barnabas introduced him to the church on that first Sunday when he brought him back. Hey, everybody. Uh, You might remember our guest speaker today. He uh, tried to kill several of you many years ago. And uh, you were running for your lives, but now he's going to tell you about the way, the truth, and the life. It's Saul, you know. I don't know how excited they were. Uh, Yeah, okay. You think those people weren't amazed by grace every single Sunday? Every time he stepped into the pulpit? I mean, a living example of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ constantly in front of them. From church history, early church history, we know that Luke, the author of Acts, was a Syrian. He was a native of Antioch. And so we don't don't know exactly when Luke was converted, but it's, it's probable that Luke was one of the first Gentile converts in Antioch. So Luke is probably there as Paul comes and is brought to pastor this church. And it made me just wonder, who who told Luke about Stephen's death we read about earlier? Who knew the details so intricately? Who Who was close enough to Stephen to hear his last words before he died? Well, it was probably Luke's pastor, Paul. And I wonder... I just wonder if every time Paul told them about Stephen, I wonder if he was tempted to look at them and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what I did to you. I'm so sorry that that is what I was like. And my guess is, every time he told them, their response was, praise God. Look at what God has done. He has used you even before you were born again to help create this church. God can do anything he wants. He used Saul. It's amazing how God works. Don't underestimate the church. This is an odd group of people. Odd circumstances being scattered by persecution. Their pastor was the one who persecuted them. This is God's church at work. And finally, number four, fourth observation from our text, the church is generous in giving. Honestly, it was just interesting to me 
that Luke records for us this section, verses 27 through 30. When you read about this and, and Paul becoming the pastor there and how the church began and these anonymous men starting it, I just I thought this is interesting. Why include this detail about them giving? And what it says is Agabus, who is a, a prophet from Jerusalem, he comes down and he prophesies this great famine. And, and Luke en- includes these parentheses that this did happen in the days of Claudius. So he was right about telling this famine is coming. We see this a couple times in the book of Acts. But the point of the text is not really focused on the prophecy. The, the, the point of the text is focused on the response of this new church. I think that's why Luke includes it. It's this new church. It's brand new. Jews and Gentiles. And look at how they respond to this information. Look at verse 29. So the disciples determined. Everyone according to his ability. To send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They, one of the first things they do to express their unity is to give. Antioch is going to be a giving church, a generous church. They're going to send out Barnabas and Paul as church planting missionaries. This was a huge sacrifice. They're going to support them in their work. They're going to financially support them. They're going to support other churches and be generous and give to these church plants. And so it's really no surprise that one of the first things we see them do as a church is to be generous and to give. And remember, this is, these are Jews and Gentiles. They're giving to the church in Jerusalem, which consists of Jews. And this is before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, when they make a determination about what to do with these Gentiles. They, their, their disposition is to be generous and to give. I think, that's, I think that's what Luke is showing us. This is the disposition of this church. It is a generous church. They determined everyone according to his ability. This sounds very similar to what their pastor Paul wrote to the Corinthians. When he said in 2 Corinthians 9-7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I'm sure Paul was pastoring them through this giving and participation to help this other church and to do it cheerfully they give cheerfully and I just imagine the joy it brings them this new church that just began and revivals breaking out to to participate and give to these other Christians as this famine spreads around the world they gave generously this week we're going to send out our annual giving letter to encourage you to prayerfully consider giving to the church and and Listen, we recognize that you will get many requests to give and we don't want you to give reluctantly or under compulsion, but cheerfully. And just this text inspired me. I just thought this is what the church is. It is generous. It gives. We have a great mission. What God is doing through his church on this planet is unlike anything else. 
Nothing else like this is taking place in this world outside of the church. And the Lord has called us to plant churches, to send out, to be generous in sending so that more might come in. We want to be a generous church. We want to be like the church in Antioch. Don't underestimate the church. Don't underestimate your giving. Don't underestimate your participation. Don't underestimate our mission and what God can do. Don't underestimate who God can bring in. Don't underestimate the church. This church is a, it's a miracle of grace and ours is too. Don't underestimate it. John Piper in 1981 did a message called the Cosmic Church. And he began the message like only John Piper can. And I'm going to read a quote from him. This is how he began his message in 1981. It's how we're going to finish this morning. John Piper says this. The church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. That is not an overstatement. That is a fact. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. Take that for political season right there. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear. And all pomp of May Day in Red Square and the pageantry of New Year's in Pasadena fade into a formless gray against the splendor of the Bride of Christ. Take heed how you judge. Things are not what they seem. The media and all the powers and authorities and rulers and stars that they present are a mirage. I love that. The gates of Hades, the powers of death, will prevail against every institution but one, the church. Don't underestimate the church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for this church. Thank you for the members, the people you've called here, the guests who are here this morning. We are here for one name. That is the name above all names, Jesus Christ. And I pray for this church, Cornerstone Church, that you would Unite our hearts together to fear your name. I pray for a unity, for a mission, for a generosity. Lord, have mercy on us. Give us grace to be a church that for generations to come plants many churches for your glory, advances your gospel on this earth. The gates of Hades will prevail against every institution but one. It's your church. And so we pray for this church that you would use us to advance your gospel on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
You've been listening to a message given by Mike Pluniak during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.